If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and read the first 18 verses, I think. We will continue on in Hebrews for one more week, and then for all those people who love Christmas so much, we'll try to go in that direction a little bit more directly. But no, I'm a Puritan at heart and would preach through Hebrews for the next seven years if I didn't have so many complaints. Um, anyway, <clears throat> hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together. Father, we again ask for your help as we wrestle with the, the deep truths of your word, with these doctrinal positions that set up the foundation for all of the Christian life. We pray, uh, Lord, that we would not be bored by the doctrine, uh, but, but rather would do our best mentally to pay attention as spiritually the Holy Spirit works these truths deep down into our hearts that we might know the Lord, we might know the assurance of salvation, and that we might know the, the joy and the peace of the Holy Spirit that comes from that assurance, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, uh, this week, I, I, I sort of skimmed a book called, uh, it was on the New York Times bestselling list a few years ago, A, a Year of living biblically. Uh, perhaps some of you have uh, seen it. 
Um, it's written by an agnostic Jew named A.J. Jacobs. After finishing uh, a project, uh, his previous book was uh, a book about his time reading the entire Britannica Encyclopedia and what he had gleaned from that. Um, he decided, uh, through some friends of his, to read the entire Bible in five weeks. Anyone in here ever done that? An agnostic Jew read the Bible in five weeks. After he read it, he wrote down every single law that he could find in the Old Testament as well as the New, and decided that he was going to try to take the Bible as literally as possible and try to keep all of those laws. Well, as you know, he, he did it as sort of a gimmick in order to write his book. So he didn't really take it that seriously. And, of course, he never really believed in God. He still is an agnostic Jew uh, to this day. Uh, you could tell even in his attempts at many of the laws, he was sort of half-hearted in his approach. For instance, when he was told that he needed to pray daily, he prayed, but he didn't pray to the Lord. He prayed to some unseen force that he was trying to reconcile himself to. Uh, in a similar way, he, he mainly focused on a lot of the outward um, ceremonial laws that, that, that are the more obscure ones. Uh, for instance, he, would, he purposely wore his, his beard as long as he could get in an untamed sort of a way, so he, he started looking like Moses very quickly, started wearing a white sheet and wearing sandals and carrying around a pole. Again, keep in mind, he lives in New York City, so he looked like a freak. Uh, he purposely bought this, um, maybe you've seen them, it's, it's like a, uh, a walking stick that turns into a chair. You've seen these guys before where all of a sudden he hits it down to the ground and then sits in the chair so that he doesn't have to become impure by sitting in any place that a Gentile or any unclean person has sat. So he's trying to follow all of these very unusual laws. Of course, he didn't take any of the sacrificial laws here. So he says there's no temple. He couldn't perform any of the sacrifices. Therefore, there was no sense of making right all the laws that he had broken. And he admits very freely that he broke many, many of them. And then those other times where he didn't like the laws of God, he would try to circumvent God's pattern by trying to minimize the laws in one way or another. For instance, uh, uh, you know the law of stoning adulterers. Well, he literally went up to some friends of his and found someone who had committed adultery and took tiny little pebbles and started throwing them at them with permission. Uh, the same way, uh, you know, spoil the, the child, spare the rod concept, uh, he bought a Nerf baseball bat and started to pretend to hit his kid so that it would look like he was keeping the law of God. So you see a lot of these things. And then, of course, when he finally got to the things where he really had a hard time with, for instance, homosexuality, uh, he basically just found any liberal scholar he could find to tell him that it didn't say what it really says so that he wouldn't have to follow those laws or come to that same conclusion. In the end of the book, he says that no one really takes the Bible that seriously, right? Uh, no one has ever taken it that literally and that every one of us picks and chooses. That may be true to some extent given our sinful nature, we find a way not to do what God calls us to do. But he says, in the end, everyone has a cafeteria religion, and that's okay. That's his conclusion. Well, that's certainly not the conclusion that the writer of Hebrews comes to after his long exposition on the law of God and the need for sacrifice that he's been constantly making these last ten chapters. I'll have you notice that this is the last doctrinal section of the letter. 
Next week, you finally get into the application. All this time, he's not really told you to do anything, but it's helped you to understand why you need to look to Christ again and again and again. Because you cannot save yourselves by keeping the law. You cannot turn back to the old Jewish ways and try to keep those laws yourselves because you can't. You will fail miserably again and again. And so rather than encouraging these Jewish Christians, those who had come out of the Jewish faith and were, uh, had, be, had professed faith in Christ, now they were tempted to go back to Judaism. He's again writing to them to tell them, don't do it. Keep your eyes on Christ. Look to him in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and in that you will find hope. So this, this passage that we're looking at this morning, again, it's the conclusion to his argument. He wants us to take one more look at Christ before we begin to understand what it means to apply the Christian life uh, for each of us. So he wants us to look one more time at Christ and, and what he actually accomplished on the cross for us before he asks us to do anything. And so what I want us to, to consider this morning is what did Christ actually accomplish on the cross for us today? There's three things that the writer points out to us and I want to stress this morning for, for us. First, on the cross, he obtained our forgiveness. Second, he gained our perfection. And third, he initiated our sanctification. It's very important doctrinal truths that we really have to understand before we can try to live the Christian life, uh, at least in the, in the right way. So first of all, on the cross, Jesus obtained the forgiveness of our sins. Now, the, the author's already pointed this out numerous times, but he's going to look at it from one other facet, if you will, this morning. If you look in verse 1, there again he's describing the Old Testament laws. This time he describes the Old Testament laws as a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities that we now have in Christ. Now, I'm sure many of you have uh, walked down a sidewalk at one time or another, and uh, around the building you see a shadow coming your direction. You knew a person was coming. You had no idea what they looked like. All you could see was their shadow, but their shadow was moving forward. But then finally when you saw the person themselves, it became clear who this person was. You may have recognized You may have known them. The shadow itself could not tell you who they were. It was missing all the details. He's saying in, in a very similar way that what we have in the Old Testament laws, especially in the ceremonial sacrifices, it points us to Christ but doesn't really show us clearly who Christ is. You have to look to Christ now. Why would you go back to the shadows when now the person is here, you see? So again, he keeps saying, don't go back. It's all just a shadow. It's a silhouette rather than a Savior. It's a contour rather than Christ. You're not getting the real thing. You're only getting the, the signpost that points to him. But not only were they these ceremonial laws, not only were they just a mere shadow of the reality, they never actually obtained the forgiveness of sins for anyone. They never had power in themselves to accomplish anything. For in verse 2, the author says, otherwise, if they did, would they not have ceased to be offered? If they actually had power to bring forgiveness, why keep offering them? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer need this because they no longer have any consciousness of their sin. It, it would have been wiped out. But 
those sacrifices constantly reminded the people that they were still unclean. They still were not quite right with God. I think uh, most of you know Whenever a new drug is being tested under clinical trial, they'll, they'll get a, a number of different people to, to have that, that pill or that injection given to them so that they can see how effective the drug is. And as you know, there's always one group that receives the placebo instead. They have that pill that has nothing in it, or they get an injection that's really not doing anything, but it looks just like the real thing. In a sense, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is the same thing. He's saying all those sacrifices, they all were placebos. There was nothing active in them. There was nothing powerful, no active agent that actually brought forgiveness. They all were meant to point to the final cure that could only come through Christ. There was no cleansing through those sacrifices. There was no healing through those sacrifices. It was merely pointing to the one who could cleanse, to the one who could heal. So then, then you might ask, well, what's the purpose then for all of those sacrifices? Well, the, the New Testament makes it very clear, basically to stay the wrath of God until the Savior could be revealed. To keep God's anger from bursting out upon the camp of Israel again and again and again, those sacrifices were absolutely needed. They only covered the sin, though. They didn't wipe it out. They didn't cure it. Again, I think I was probably the last generation to learn how to type on a typewriter. Remember my senior year in high school? Learning how to type. I thought it might come in handy sometime, and I do a lot of bit of typing now, so I'm glad I did. But I remember how painful it was. Oh, how painful it was. I'm not as careful or cautious as the average typer probably, but I remember afterwards you had to turn in what you had done, and then before you could do that, you had to correct your mistakes. Do you remember those little white strips of whatever those things are? They're called Tipex. Every single mistake that you made, you had to go back and put that stupid white little strip behind where the letter was that you messed up and type the same letter. The only problem is if you happened to scroll down a sentence or two, it was never in the same place. You couldn't fix it. You tried to cover it up, but when you're done, you could tell it still was so imperfect. It was horrible. Even the coloring of the white ink on those little strips was not quite the same color as your paper. So when you finally turn it, here's my final product. It looked horrible. So thankful for word processors, for computers. In an instant, one click, you can erase it all. The whole paragraph, the whole page. Start over, clean, clean piece of paper. That's exactly what he's saying. All of those sacrifices, it was just covering, 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 but still so imperfect. It never cured it, and you always knew it. By the time you were ready to say, okay, here's what I have. Oh, it looks so horrible. I don't feel good. It still feels so imperfect. But when someone understands what Christ has accomplished on the cross, He's wiped away the sin completely. You can't even see it anymore. It's completely gone. 
It's not just covered over. It's cured. It's healed. That's why Christ's sacrifice was needed. Verse 4, the author says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Uh, it's, in fact, that verse from which Isaac Watts wrote the hymn that we're going to sing later on at the end of the service where he says this, not all the blood of beast on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. And all of those beasts, not a single one could ever cleanse the conscience. He says, but Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. In one stroke on the cross, he wipes it all out, and it's gone. So he obtains the forgiveness of sins that the beast could never accomplish. That's number one. Number two, not only does Christ obtain our forgiveness through his sacrifice on the cross, he also gains our perfection. Now, that's not a term that we're used to saying in reference to ourselves, but he gains our perfection. Again, at the end of verse 1, the author says that all those sacrifices continually offered every year in the temple, he says, could never make perfect any of those who drew near unto God. You'll notice that I put that in the past tense, although the author puts it in the present, because at the time, the temple was still standing when he was writing this epistle. And they were still making sacrifices daily in the temple, and he's, the writer of Hebrews is saying it's pointless those sacrifices are worthless. They are shadows pointing to the reality that's already come. They're placebos that do not bring a cure. They cover over sin, but they don't cure sin. Why would you ever want to go back to the Old Testament temple sacrifices? They're worthless. Then in verses 5 through 7, the author begins to quote again this time from Psalm 40, which is a psalm of David, but you'll notice in verse 5, he doesn't attribute the psalm to David, but rather he attributes it to Jesus. Notice he says that when Christ came into the world, he spoke these words. Now, it's interesting because there's no evidence that Jesus ever said this when he came into the world, or that he even quoted it for that matter. How then can the author say that these are the words of Christ? Well, he's basically taking Luke 24, literally, when Jesus says to the disciples, that all the law of Moses, all the prophets, and all the Psalms were about what? They're about me, he says. And so he's interpreting it exactly as Jesus had taught him to interpret the Old Testament, that it all is about Christ. Even when David is talking, oftentimes David is talking about someone much farther into the future than himself. So what exactly is David saying in these verses? How does he apply it to Christ? First he says in verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Speaking to God. He's saying, sacrifices and offerings, God, you don't desire them. Seems strange for an Old Testament believer to say that. Then if you look in verse 6, again he says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. So the, the author of Hebrews is pointing out that even in the Old Testament, God didn't want sacrifices. And of all the sacrifices that were offered on a daily basis, he's saying God didn't want them. That he wasn't pleased with them, but rather he wanted something more. He wanted something else better than that. I'll give you a few examples from the Old Testament. Psalm 51, David 
during the midst of his prayer confession. He says to the Lord, for you will not delight in sacrifice or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Similarly, you remember in 1 Samuel 15, after King Saul had disobeyed God's command to, to kill the Amalekites and to wipe out all of their possessions, he kept a lot of the stuff and, and preserved King Agag and did everything he wasn't supposed to do. And when Samuel rebukes him for it, he says, okay, it's no big deal. I'll just make a sacrifice unto God and give him some of the stuff. And immediately, if you remember, Samuel rebukes the king even more sternly, and he says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than what? Sacrifice. And to listen is better than all the fat of all the rams. Now, most of you are familiar with Micah 6, 8, which I'll quote in a second, but it comes after Micah 6, 7, which you may not be as familiar with. But there the prophet says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? No. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do what? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He wants something more than mere sacrifice. Again, the Lord himself says in Jeremiah chapter 7, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh yourself. For in the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, a much more important command. He said, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I command you, that it may be well with you. So again, his point is that, yes, sacrifices were needed to cover over sin, but that's not what God wanted. Sacrifices never were desirable to God. They were never pleasing unto God. What did he want? He wanted their heart. He wanted their obedience. All the sacrifices did was try to make up for not obeying him, for not walking with him. And that's the point of the author of Hebrews, that there's something more that the Lord has always wanted than mere sacrifices. So why would you go back to the Old Testament sacrifices? You're just trying to buy off God. He wants his people's obedience. So going back to Psalm 40, as it's quoted in verse 5, David is comparing the sacrifices and offerings that God has not desired with the body that he has desired. There, David says, a body you have prepared for me. Of course, there's a sense in which David is admitting that God has given him ears, God has given him a body for the very purpose of obeying the Lord. So you could apply that to David. But it's what he says in verse 7 that clearly is messianic in nature. In verse 7, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And we know that it's not in reference to David because David did not obey God's will. Not like he should. He's not going to write home about his great obedience. This can't be about David. He's referring to the son of David who would come, who does say this, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That God had prepared a body for him for the exact reason that he might obey his will perfectly. That's why he could come 
into the earth. And so the writer of Hebrews is envisioning Christ before he is incarnated, if you will, before he takes on flesh, even while in heaven, while he's making that transition to become a baby in Bethlehem, he's saying, behold, a body you have prepared for me, and I have come to do your will, O God, just as it is written. What God had desired all along, even from the Garden of Eden, was not sacrifices, but obedience. Obedience unto God. But again, who has ever obeyed God in that way? No one. No one has even come close. Unlike A.J. Jacobs in his flippant attempts at keeping some of the laws of the Bible at different times, Jesus not only kept every single ceremonial law, but every single moral law. All those laws that we can't keep for a minute, he kept them all perpetually, willingly, perfectly, all his life. Not just for one year, as A.J. Jacobs was trying to do, but for 33 years, his whole lifespan kept God's law perfectly. But the author's comparison here is not between a half-hearted Jew's attempt at keeping the law and the perfect son of God's keeping of the law, but rather he's comparing an offering of a senseless animal involuntarily sacrificed to a man who willingly lays down his life as a sacrifice for sins. He's saying, how could you even be tempted to go back to the Old Testament and look for a sacrifice of an animal against its will, if you will, being led as a lamb to the slaughter? In comparison to what we saw in the passage that Mark read earlier in Genesis 22, we often forget that when Abraham was offering Isaac as a sacrifice, Isaac was not a little boy. Isaac was a man, and he willingly laid down on the altar in obedience unto his father. Do you not see that pointing to Christ? What he's saying is, forget all of those placebos that were pointing to the actual reality. Christ has come in perfect obedience and perfect fulfillment to keep the sacrifice that God requires. Now, this is, it's important that we understand this. It's not just the fact that Christ died for our sins and has granted us forgiveness of sins. It's not that he was just a perfect sacrifice. What's important for us to understand is that he became perfect through that sacrifice. This is something the writer of Hebrews has pointed out to, to us already three times in, 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 in the book of Hebrews. He keeps saying that Christ became perfect. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, we know that eternally Christ has always been perfect. He's the perfect Son of God. But what he means is he proved his perfection through his obedience, especially in his obedience through suffering, that through his suffering and his willingness to obey the Father through that suffering, he proved he's perfect. And he gained a perfect standing before God, not just through all the laws that he had kept 
all 33 years. But through that final test, through that final trial, would he obey God, not just in life, but in death? Would he be willing to do that? So that's what we see from the very beginning. We know that Jesus came, I, I come into this world to do your will, O God. We see him early on with his disciples uh, telling them in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. But at the end of his ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him having to wrestle with that as any human would. There he says, Father, and it, this is, keep in mind, the, the Greek, the way it reads it, he went numerous times to pray, and each time he's praying the same thing. At least three times. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Three times he prays that. That he would live in perfect submission Perfect obedience to the will of God. Unlike Adam and Eve who couldn't keep even the first command, don't eat from this one tree, he's showing what perfect obedience is and how it is gained. God doesn't let us into heaven because we haven't sinned as bad as someone else. The only way to get into heaven is through perfect obedience. Christ comes back into paradise in our place through perfect obedience. When he dies, he's immediately brought into the presence of God. Of course, we, we know that Christ obeyed the Lord, even in death. That, that's why we celebrate Christmas. We forget that, you know, the, the very reason why he's incarnated is for this reason. It's not just because we love babies, right? People have always tried to think Christmas is their favorite holiday of the year, and they like to keep Christ as a baby. But the whole purpose of him becoming the baby is so that he can grow up and obey God every single day so that when finally he comes to that final trial, will he obey God perfectly? I, I love the way Michael Card says it in his uh, song, Love Crucified Arose. Speaking of Christ, he says, Long ago he blessed the earth, born older than the years, and even in the stall, the cross he saw through the first of many tears. From the very beginning, he was born that he would die. He was born that he would obediently and willingly die as a sacrifice for sin. This is so important because the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus became perfect through his obedience. But notice in verse 14, he's also saying, and this is how it applies to us. Verse 14, he's saying that through his single offering, he also has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, if you compare verse 14 to verse 1, if you remember, the author said that all of those sacrifices could never perfect the one drawing near unto God. But now he's saying, regardless of the thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices that never perfected anyone, in one single offering, not only did Jesus prove his perfection, but he gained our perfection all at one time. Now, it, it seems kind of crazy that we would even consider that, that we have been made perfect. In fact, we're very uh, familiar with the bumper stickers that read, what, Christians aren't perfect, but what? We're just forgiven. <laughs> 
well, I think we all understand the sentiment. We're basically saying we're bad drivers, and hopefully you'll forgive us, you know, in that regard. But there's truth to it, and there's also something that's missing in that as well, because the truth is, according to Scripture, we are perfect. But what does that mean? Well, we know it doesn't mean that I always do what God has told me to do. It doesn't mean that I will always walk righteously and say the righteous thing and even think the righteous thing. But positionally before the Lord, the, the one thing that the animal sacrifices could not do, immediately his offering through our faith in Jesus as our offering, immediately it grants us a perfect standing before God that we can go into the presence of God and not die. Immediately have fellowship with the Lord based upon his one perfect sacrifice. So what, what happens, we often talk about the uh, reckoning or attribution of our sin unto Christ, but especially the kids here, li listen to this. If you haven't listened to anything i said so far, here, listen to this part, okay? Very, very important. You will never get into heaven by trying hard. Never happen. You will never be good enough. God will never accept you. God will never be pleased with you for just trying to be a good person because you're not. We're not. To get into heaven, you have to be perfect. And the only way you can be perfect is if two things happen. On the one hand, God takes your sin and puts it on Christ and Christ dies in your place. But at the same time, he then takes the righteousness of Christ and places it on you. The perfect obedience that Christ had won is now given to you. So when Christ looks, when God looks at you, he sees Christ. That's what Paul's saying again and again in the epistles you are in Christ Jesus. You are one with Christ Jesus through our union with Christ by faith. You have been given a perfect, righteous standing before God if you trust in Christ. I, I don't know how many times in the church I can talk to people that don't get that concept. I think I might have to preach it every week. You will never be good through your works. Your works are not acceptable to God. Christ's perfect works are the only thing that God will ever be pleased with, and he gives it to you in a moment and wipes out all of your sins in a moment so that when you go before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Because of what Christ has done, not just through his sacrifice, but through his perfect obedience every day of his life that now has been given unto me positionally. I have been perfected. I have been sanctified, past tense, through the one act of Christ. Now, but it's interesting, though, because this, it, it, there are some qualifications to it, and I'll explain what I mean by that, but, but before I, I do that, I just want to say this. Um, if you're going to trust in Christ, you have to really trust in Christ. Now, what I mean by that is you completely abandon all hope of ever getting into heaven on your own. You completely abandon all hope of ever being a good person because you won't be. You have to completely rely upon Christ. Now, and this is one of my favorite hymns by Horatius Bonar. Um, 
uh, 19th century uh, hymn writer. He, he says this, if you understand this and can agree with this, then you understand the gospel. Here's what he says. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. You understand that? My salvation is not based upon a death I didn't die, or, or life that I lived, but upon Christ's death, upon Christ's obedience, upon His life, and now I stake my entire soul, my entire eternity, based upon what Christ has done, and I rest in that, knowing that I have been saved because of what Christ has done. Any assurance of salvation that I have is going to be based first and foremost upon what Christ has done, always. Now, that leads us into the third point, and I'll try to wrap this up here soon. In addition to that, through his sacrifice on the cross, Christ also initiated our sanctification. Again, if you look back at verse 14, the author says this, that through his single offering, Christ has perfected, past tense, for all time those who present tense are being sanctified. Notice how he uses the two different tenses. In fact, the, the perfection and the sanctification are words that are often used interchangeably in Scripture. Um, in, in fact, uh, sometimes, in fact, if you look back at verse 10, verse 10, he will use the word sanctified uh, in the past tense, but then in verse 14, he uses it in the present tense. And throughout Hebrews, he uses it sometimes in the past tense and present tense for perfection as well. They're very similar concepts in that regard. In fact, if you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I know you all do so regularly, the church is described in this way. It's described as the gathering and perfecting of the saints. Now, that's a strange way of putting it. We don't use those terms as much anymore. But we're gathering together people who are now called saints, in other words, people who are now sanctified and perfected in Christ. Why? So that we can now be perfected, continue to grow in perfection, so that we begin to look like something that God has called us to be. So in other words, not only has God wiped away our sins and granted us full forgiveness, not only has He given us His righteous, perfect standing, but now through the Spirit, through that one act of that one sacrifice, he initiates a new beginning in us that never could have happened in the Old Testament in the same way. In fact, he, he, he specifically is looking at, again, quoting verse 16 from Jeremiah chapter 31, again showing us that through Christ's sacrifice, a new covenant has been initiated. He says, in this, this new covenant, he says, I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This has been the goal all along, not merely to send Christ to cover our sins, not merely to send Christ to give us a righteous standing before God, but to implant within us a new heart, to give us a new principle of grace, a new zeal for the Lord's will, a new affection for the Lord, that we might learn what it means to please Him that we might want to do what God actually calls us to so that we're no longer worried about sacrifices but are now free to serve Him with all of our heart. 
to actually do those two primary commands in Scripture. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. We couldn't do them because we're so wrapped up in all of our weaknesses, so wrapped up in all of our guilt. We're now freed from all that and now given this new ability, this new desire to do what we could not do before. Again, I think it's popular. Uh, what Nowadays, I, I just recently, I, I looked on the web uh, yesterday and I saw that um, there are a long list of um, random acts of kindness that you can now do on the Christmas holidays. Like there's a list of hundreds of them. Here's a hundred random acts of kindness. You know, it used to be the tradition was do good deeds for the sake of the Lord, I think is, you know, it's the same concept, but, uh, but the, the, the phraseology was different. But, but even the tradition of, of just doing good deeds at Christmas time is sort of a way, in, in a sense, in which we're trying to go back in some sort of Catholic way of trying to do something for God. Trying to do something special, give an extra offering unto God at Christmas time, and God will be pleased. That, that's not what God wants from us. He doesn't want an extra few dollars thrown in the plate when we pass by Walmart. He doesn't want us to merely try to think more like Christ at Christmas. The reason why Christ was born, the reason why he obeyed the Lord, the reason why he went to the cross in our place was to save us, but then to give us a new desire and ability to obey God every day, not just at Christmas time, not just one day out of the year that we're going to try to be good that day. <laughs> no. We desire to do good because that's what God has now called us to do, and that's what we want to do. Now, we don't do it perfectly. We're constantly being perfected. Sometimes it doesn't look like it, <laughs> uh, but that is what God has called us to do. So, so that when we're transformed, he says, by the renewing of our minds, we learn what is the will of God so that we can try to now walk in accordance to the will of God. So that now, similar to Christ, we can say, behold, Lord, I'm here to do your will. I'm here to please you. The, the, the good news of the gospel is not merely that he's removed our guilt and, and given us a, a ticket to heaven, but that he's made us into new creations in Christ Jesus. To where now, we have this desire, this ability to obey the Lord that we never had. Not, and we're not doing it because we're trying to earn anything from God, but because it, it so pleases us now to please the Lord. We, didn't, we weren't pleased to do the Lord's will. We were pleased to do our own will, but now we're pleased to do His. And since God owns everything anyway, it's not like you're going to give Him anything at Christmas time. He doesn't already have. Right? He already owns it all. So throwing a, a few extra dollars His way or, or doing a couple extra good deeds, that's not going to benefit Him in any way. Uh, C.S. Lewis once gave the analogy of a father giving uh, spare change to his son, uh, sixpence in the English, so that his son could buy him a Christmas present. And uh, he says, in the end, the, the father's sixpence none the richer, because he's merely giving back to him what the father already had. But what is it that pleases the father? 
that what God has given, the, the Father has given to the Son, He now freely wants to please His Father with that gift. In the same way, what Christ has given us at Christmas, if you will, has given us hope of a new life in Christ Jesus, of new desires, new abilities, all for the purpose of merely using those abilities and those desires to give back to God what is rightfully His, our obedience, which is what He's wanted all along. It's very important that we understand this last point simply because I think a lot of churches have a tendency just to focus on the gospel to a certain extent. God has forgiven us. We got our ticket to heaven. We're ready to go to heaven, but, but there's more to the story than that. He saved us for a reason. He saved us for a goal. He saved us so that we could be what he originally created us to be because that's what gives him the most glory. When he sees his sanctified people growing in sanctification and giving all the glory to God for our salvation, for any hope of change in us whatsoever, Again, it's not immediate, very slow, very painful. But the fact that the, even on the day that we die, I hope that none of us here say, you know, I, I think I did pretty good. <laughs> but that Christ saved a wretch like me. And what a wonderful salvation it is. He's wiped out my sin completely has given me his perfections and has given me a foretaste of heaven, even through the Spirit indwelling in me, even now, that I might know him, that I might walk with him, that I might learn how to please him. And we'll pray that the Lord continues to give us more and more of that desire, more and more of that ability, more love, more power, more of him in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us in our weakness. You would help us in our foolishness. Uh, there's so many things that we do in our lives that still look like the old man, that don't at all look like we have any principle of grace residing in us, that we, we walk like we're pleasing ourselves rather than pleasing you. We, we pray, Father, that you would help us to remember why you've saved us. Not because you saw anything good in us at all, but merely because you had mercy upon sinners and you wiped away all of our sin. You have given us a righteous standing in your sight that we might know you, that we might fellowship with you, that we might love you, that we might be able to walk in a way that, that looks to please you. We pray, Father, you'd help us to do that more and more. In Christ's name.